As many of you know, in summertime, we take an opportunity to hear from one another about our experiences in faith. It's one of the great gifts to me as a pastor to hear from folks and to talk with them about what they want to share with the broader congregation. And so this past Lent, we had a series called Exploring Our Faith, in which each of us was invited to explore what our faith means to us at this moment in time, realizing that it's always an ongoing journey and experiment. And then this summer, we've been hearing from people about their milestones in their faith. And just to recap, and Amy, I may need you to help me or others, I started off by talking about a realization of being an instrument of God's peace. Amy talked about hearing the call. Ramiro talked about finding welcome in this place and how that had shaped his faith. We heard from Amanda Grant-Rose from Common Cathedral, the church for people who were unhoused on the common, about how sometimes faith can be hidden in plain sight. We heard from Priya Devavaram, one of our youth, about affirming life in the midst of death. And last week we heard from Casey Brown, a transgendered member of our community, about their, their search for faith in different church communities and finding it. We're going to hear uh, later this month from uh, Alicia Shu and Ellen Bruce about their experiences at Common Art, from John Carter about uh, both solitude and community, loneliness and community, and how they fit together, Joseph Fat Contreras and Matt Weber. And today we hear from Denise Patman. She and I have had a lot of emails and great conversations this week about something that happened to her nearly 30 years ago in another place. And so I invite Denise to come and share with us today. Good morning, everybody. Please know that I consider this an honor to share with you my moments of growth in faith as a Christian. The purpose of my talk this morning is to offer you insights that I received into the impact and the far reaches of faith and benevolence beyond our U.S. border. My practice of faith with others different from myself strengthened me as a human being and as a Christian, which in turn showed me a face of benevolence, which I witnessed through the eyes of another culture. So first of all, who am I as a Christian? My being has always been anchored in the church. As some of you may know, I was reared in a Presbyterian faith in my parents' household, and I've been a member of the United Parish since the 1980s, shortly after my mother passed away in 1981. I have been an active member of the church, and I have served in several leadership capacities. I was married here on July 24, 1988, my son was baptized and confirmed here, and where is he? <laughs> and suffice it to say, I consider United Parish my church home. From 1990 until 1994, I lived in Hiroshima, Japan. And thank you, Jody, by the way, for that wonderful rendition of Sakura. My husband's work provided him an opportunity to live there, 
and my research brought us there. Before leaving the United States, Rodney, my husband, and I met with Reverend Pat Coughlin to talk about our anticipated experience living abroad in a non-Western, non-Christian environment. Honestly, I had a very low threshold of expectations for practicing Christianity because the Japanese culture, as you know, largely identifies as non-Christian. In fact, when we lived there, many people said to us that they were not religious at all. However, Shinto and Buddhism are, Jap are Japan's two major religions. Shinto, called Kami no Machi, is the indigenous religion of Japan and the practice with which most Japanese people identify. It is defined as an action-centered religion. Buddhism was imported there in the sixth century. For my purposes as a Christian, foreigner, as a foreigner and a Christian, it was most enlightening that less than 1% of the Japanese identified as Christian. Needless to say, Rodney and I did not believe that we would have opportunities to practice our faith nor find a church. My mindset was fixed on two notions. One, we were Americans of African descent. And we had read in the American newspapers at that time that the Japanese had a prejudice against black-skinned people. And number two, finding a place of worship, Christian acts of kindness, and my eyes of Christian faith would be dulled for the short period of time that we thought we would be living there. Given these self-imposed limitations, we tucked our Christian faith in our suitcases, which included bringing our Bible, and considered our religion to be a private matter, to be practiced and referenced just between the two of us. However, what I found was that from the point of touching my feet to Japanese soil, the signs of Christ-like behavior surrounded me everywhere. We arrived at Narita Airport in Tokyo in August of 1990. To make our connection from Tokyo to Hiroshima Prefecture, where we were to live in a small rural rice planting town named Chiodacho, we had to change airports from Narita to Haneda. Our hands were full with suitcases and our desktop computer. There were no laptops back then for the younger people in the congregation. And other miscellaneous items, despite having shipped our household items and clothing via sea. En route to Haneda, I inadvertently left a beautiful cased Apple computer on the sidewalk outside of the bus stop at Narita. We were almost at our other airport destination before we noticed that it was lost. 
We agreed that I would return to the spot of embarkation to check with Lost and Found and meet Rodney outside of the Haneda Airport. In our best, worst Japanese, we asked the bus driver to let me off, which he did. I knew that our beloved Apple computer with all of its important data would be gone. As a child of New York City, I felt that the people of Tokyo, a global city just like Boston and New York, would quickly swoop up this valuable item and then I would never find it, especially since the Japanese were not self-identifying as Christian people. In the pit of my stomach, I felt trepidation. Nevertheless, I returned. Just at the moment of pre-tears and true self-pity, as I scanned the spot where we had stood, I saw my computer. There it sat, in the exact same place where I had left it, out in the open, in its cute designed cover with its Apple logo on it. I couldn't believe it. No one had touched it. Smiles quickly replaced the worry that I had plastered on my face before seeing it. Rodney was patiently waiting for me at the entrance of the Haneda Airport, and his smile was apparent too once he saw that I had retrieved our apple and that I was safe. Was this a sign about the practice of benevolence of a non-Christian people, or was it just good luck? I wondered. We wondered aloud together. Life in Chiyoda Cho took some getting used to. We are both city people, so living in a truly rural environment was completely new to us, not to mention where everyday shopping was a huge challenge for me. I remember buying Clorox, which I thought was apple juice. Good thing I sniffed it before I poured it for a drink. The Japanese people in our small town and the sponsor himself were extremely kind and helpful, though we had not ventured out much. In fact, our first big venture into the city was to go to the Hiroshima Museum of Art, a round structure that included both Western European and Japanese art, a place that was recommended by our local host family. We carefully followed instructions recommended and we got terribly lost, trying to find the street location once we arrived in the city. We asked a motorist for directions, and giving our halting Japanese the signage and the motorist stilted English, he just turned around and told us, get in the car. <laughs> we did so without hesitation. He drove us to the museum, which we probably would have never found on our own, and wondered, gee, we just got in the car of a complete stranger. Hmm. Another face of benevolence. I could not get over how amazed I was that we actually did this, given our urban backgrounds. Who were these Shinto Buddhist non-practicing Christians? Though we did not dwell on this aha moment at that time, we made note of our behavior and enjoyed the rest of the day in the big city. But perhaps the biggest revelation for me 
concerning God's omnipresence and powerful work to connect us as humans was the snowstorm of December 1990. It was a doozy. It was a Saturday, and Rodney and I had gone into the city once again for a visit to yet another museum, to attend a traditional tea ceremony, and to have dinner at a friend's house, the Asada family. That Saturday was full of activity. The weather was chilly, but lovely. Rodney's employer had arranged for him to buy a big, beautiful Toyota Crown automobile, filled with all the bells and whistles at that time, so we were able to get around quite a bit. Also, we were slowly developing a deep gratitude for Japanese culture and decided to stay in Japan longer than the one year to which we had originally agreed. Shiro Shirai, famous local artist, invited us to a special exhibit that day. We enjoyed tea ceremony that afternoon and ended the evening at the Asada's house where we employed delightful fellowship, we enjoyed delightful fellowship and a shabu-shabu dinner. I remember quite vividly how Rodney drove away from the Asada home at about nine o'clock at night, headed back to our apartment in Chiyoda. Mrs. Asada waved to us and bowed from, her, from the steps of her, of her house until we could not see her anymore. We listened to local music on the radio and chatted about the fulfilling day and noticed that it had begun to snow. Another first experience in Japan, but it certainly would be just a light dusting, we thought. Though quite mountainous, we normally took the back roads to our small town from the city because it was cheaper, to be honest with you, than taking the toll road. We did so this particular night, but noticed two things. One, the radio program that we had been listening to was interrupted with some sort of warning. Even if you don't understand the language, the <laughs> something's going on. Our Japanese was not good enough to know exactly what was being said, but it was a warning. And number two, from afar, we saw a 14-wheeler glide down the side of the mountain we were about to ascend because of the snow. Rodney thought aloud by saying, let's spend the money to take the highway. So we turned around and tried to enter the highway but found ourselves in the middle of a traffic jam like no other we had ever experienced anywhere. Surely there must have been a terrible accident of some sort. It took us about three hours to reach the point of the problem. And what we discovered was absolutely amazing to our American eyes and Christian way of being. The state police were checking each individual car before allowing the motorist to enter the expressway to make sure that each car had tire chains and could make it through the storm. Rodney, do we have tire chains? I asked. 
I don't know, he replied. The police had us pull over to the side where everyone else was in a search mode, looking in their trunks to get their tire chains after putting on their white work gloves. Guess what? We did not have tire chains. So we were not permitted to get on the highway and were instructed to wait for the sun to rise to melt the snow. <laughs> it would be safe at that point for us to resume driving. What? A culture that really cared about its people would do a thing like that. Rodney is a good driver and could take his time driving in the snow. We were New Englanders, come on! There was nothing like this in our American or Christian experience that served as a watchdog if we chose to take an uncalculated risk. We were forced to stay at the restaurant, which had no end. Only a place to get fast food. So inside we went. It was, that, it was at that moment that I recognized our true American difference. Everybody else at that time of night in that rest stop was Japanese. Everybody. Japanese was the only language spoken, and we were the only gaijin foreigners. So we nursed hot soup for as long as we could and enjoyed ocha, which is green tea, to pass the time. And then we returned to the car for the wait until daybreak. We prayed to God for a warm sun, which was going to be a sign, we thought. Rodney was such a gentleman. He made certain that I was warm and comfortable in the car while he stood watch for a sign that our way home would be cleared. The state police knocked on our window when it was safe for us to drive into the morning. We did so and talked incessantly about a discovery of just how caring the entire culture in Japan was, the people. How God provided for us even when we ourselves were incapable of making the right choice. Because, of course, if left to our own decision, we would have continued on the expressway. And we probably would have gotten into an accident. We were truly flabbergasted about this by the time we reached the parking lot of our apartment complex at about 7 a.m. that Sunday morning. We noticed, though, that adhered to our apartment door, there was this little note. It was a communique from the Asada family. They had learned of the unexpected snowstorm after we had left their home. They knew that it would be very dangerous for us to journey the back roads and to perhaps not know what was going on given the severe weather alert, they risked their lives to venture out in that snowstorm on that trail that they thought that we would take in the middle of a terrible snowstorm. I was moved to tears 
I had never experienced such love and care from any church family, to tell you the truth. Anywhere in the world, the United States included. Honestly, I think that there would be members in my family who would say, oh, Rod's a good driver, they're okay, we'll call them in the morning. I'm just being honest with you. The fact that this family got in their cars and did that awful, awful job to make sure that we were not, you know, in an accident somewhere out in the wilderness was unbelievable to me. This, to me, was the epitome of God's loving presence and care. The sign was clear. Although the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as we noted in Mark, asked for a sign from Jesus that he was indeed the Son of God at the outset of my life in Japan, I too expected material signs of the acceptance of Christianity, and most importantly, a statement of welcome given my racial identity and background. I was hesitant to put my trust in a culture that was so different than my own American background, my own Christian background. I was the one with the prejudices that needed to be torn away through living this experience in Japan. I had lived a Christian life of being on the recipient side of religion. Since Christianity is the dominant religious practice in the United States, I have always welcomed others from places around the world into the doors of my church. But in this instance, I was in the true minority and sought to have my spiritual practice affirmed in a very different non-Western, non-Christian context. My faith deepened as a result of my life in Japan. I learned to truly love humanity. I learned to practice an action-based Christianity. My faith with others, different from myself, actually strengthened my religious belief and helped me, come, helped me become a more mature Christian. It was in Japan that I learned the true face of kindness and benevolence. I witnessed Christianity from the eyes and experiences of a non-Christian culture, which in turn gave power to my belief in God. Thank you for listening to my descriptive experience this morning, and may you continue to help others who are not like yourself or who practice a different religion. Instead of the manifestation of a sign of God's presence in the world, I learned that recognizing the human care given to me and my husband from others revealed the true living God in all of us. This was my greatest spiritual takeaway from my life in Japan, a place where we lived for four and a half years. Arigatou gozaimasu.